Robbie, air fist bump. Okay, good. <laughs> a couple of things before we get started. One of the daily assignments and daily privileges of your elders is we pray through the directory. And we have it separated alphabetically and, uh, and do those types of things. And so, for instance, today I am praying for S through T, which you think, oh, that doesn't sound very large, but that's uh, 26 individuals. Um, and so we're, we are thankful for a growing church. But um, I say all that just to say that when you come across your elders, what, one thing we're trying to do is, and we're trying to figure out how to do this digitally as well, but just kind of collecting a database of uh, prayer requests from our members. And so if you're just having a conversation with one of the elders and you have a specific prayer request, or if you have a prayer request, seek out an elder and, and share that with them. I'm the student pastor, so a lot of my interaction is, is not with any of you, uh, or except the students a lot of times. And so I don't get an opportunity to have a lot of uh, conversations with folks and figure out exactly what's going on in their, in their lives and those types of things. I try to seek folks out, but long story short, share your request with your elders so that we can, you know, just kind of keep that up to date in our minds and hopefully digitally one day so we can be praying for you. One other quick thing. Um, the elders also have kind of a commitment that whoever does the scripture reading that morning will be available for prayer uh, with their spouse down here at the front of the sanctuary. And so if you, at the end of the service, feel a need to be prayed for, to pray through something, uh, please come forward and find one of the elders. They're usually standing kind of over here or something like that, and, um, and connect with them and give us an opportunity just to be blessed by praying for you as well. And so just want to get that on the radar, get that on your radar screen so that you can, uh, we can just keep amping up the prayer lives of our church, you know, in a, in a tremendous way. So that would be a great blessing to all of us. Okay. So, like I said in my Thursday email, there are very few people who uh, would consider being hated a good thing. Right? Right. Your average uh, run-of-the-mill human being likes to be loved or loves to be liked. And we, in fact, we live in a culture that kind of drips with a veneer of kindness. Right? I mean, what do most people live for these days but to live for gaining the most likes on the socials? I don't ever see anyone striving to gain the most hates. In fact, that's not even a possibility, I don't think. I think you can kind of do a thumbs down on some of those things, but uh, normally you can't even say, oh, I hate your posts. But you never see someone excited about the fact that, you know, my last post got 3,000 hates. <laughs> or maybe I'm being unfollowed by everyone. But that aside, we're going to talk this morning about a serious subject about being hated by the world. In preparation for this message, I was looking into what is happening with the church in Nigeria. I don't know if you know this, but 62,000 Nigerian Christians have been killed by terrorists and other groups since the turning of the 21st century. If you do the math, just to kind of put it in perspective, that's about seven per day for the last 24 years, give or take. Now, we won't necessarily get into the atrocities of what many of these deaths actually were like, 
But you look at these reports of maybe recent persecution, or maybe you have looked into the history of the church and the persecution that took place, and it really turns your stomach. As I was kind of looking at a, I have a kind of a shorter version of Fox's Book of Martyrs, and I was reading about Thomas Hook, I believe his name was, and how he uh, was burning at the stake. And to give affirmation to his fellow brothers and sisters that watched, he would raise his hands at a certain point to say that this is a glorious thing. And it said, literally, his fingers were gone in the fire. And then all of a sudden, slumping over, they're thinking he's dead. He raises his hands in the air, claps three times, and falls over dead. When you see these things or read about these things, your, your first thought is definitely not, this is a good thing. So how then can the hatred of the world against the church be a good thing? Well, we're going to kind of look at some reasons why this morning. So let's look at reasons why it is a good thing to be hated by the world. Number one, being hated by the world is confirmation you are chosen by Christ. Being hated by the world is confirmation that you are chosen by Christ. Jesus establishes the fact that the reason he, we will be hated by the world is because the world hates him. In verse 18, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus chose us out of the world. Now you might say, what does that mean? Well, this is described for us very well in Colossians chapter 1. In verses 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So there's really three things in there that describes what it means to be chosen out of the world. Number one, we were once in the world. He says we were from the domain of darkness. Okay, and so we were living, breathing, acting, and enjoying this world of darkness that we were in. But the second thing is we were chosen. So God delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers, literally transplanted. It's like we're in the ground, you know, if you ever pulled a plant out of the ground and put it in another pot or something like that, that's what's being spoken of here. He transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And then the third thing is this was done through Jesus, who paid our ransom with His blood buying us back to Him, and therefore in Him we have redemption and have been forgiven of our sins. That's a mighty long sentence. This was done through, uh, through Jesus who paid our ransom with His blood, buying us back to Him, therefore in Him we have redemption and have been forgiven of our sins. So being chosen means being delivered from one domain and transplanted into another kingdom. Being chosen means being purchased or redeemed by Jesus. Being chosen means being forgiven of our sins. 
And being chosen means that we are no longer of the world and are therefore hated by the world. So when you are hated by the world, we ought to take heart. You are no longer under the domain of darkness. You are now a citizen in the kingdom of God's beloved Son, which makes you beloved as well. Number two, being hated by the world means you are imitating the master. Look at verses 20 and 21. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus tells them to remember that he said to them, a servant is not greater than his master. He was referring to saying it to them back in John chapter 13, verse 16. So if you have your Bibles, turn back to John chapter 13. This, of course, is the telling of the washing of the disciples' feet. And if you look at verse 16, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So the connection between his telling them this in chapter 13 and reminding them of it in chapter 15 is really the action of imitating him. So, in verse 13, Jesus, you know, says to them immediately after washing their feet, this thing. He tells them, a servant is not greater than his master, and those types of things. So, by verse 12, he's finished washing their feet. He says in verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And then verse 15 is key here. He says, for I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And so by saying a servant is not greater than his master, Jesus was saying that a servant really has only one job, to obey the master. And in the case of this dialogue in John chapter 13, obeying the master meant following the example of the master, otherwise known as imitating the master, and washing one another's feet. Now if you go back to chapter 15, Jesus says that if they persecute him, the master, then the servants should not expect anything different. And the question is, why? And here's really the gold of the situation. Jesus says in verse 21, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name. And by saying on account of my name, Jesus is essentially saying on account of me, because your name represents who you are, your character, those types of things. So Jesus is saying they, your persecutors, are coming at you. Not because of you. You are putting the master on display and they hate it. So they seek to shut you down. 
what a privilege. How many of you like basketball? Like playing basketball? Maybe you like watching and not playing, but how do you like playing basketball? There is a difference. How many of you like playing basketball, okay? How many of you would love to imitate, and I'll go back because I'm old, Michael Jordan on the basketball court? Why? Because you've seen. You see what the guy can do. I mean, he's what, 87 now, and he can still outjump all of us. You know, so, and what I mean by imitate is not your pathetic imitation of Michael Jordan, just say you have the skills of Jordan and the ability to do what he did. So, what a privilege. I mean, Michael Jordan, eh. The Lord Jesus Christ? It is a very good thing to be hated by the world for the Lord Jesus who is in you. Letter number three. Consider the alternative. There's possibly, maybe, more categories, but in this passage, there really are only two categories of people in John 15. There are those who hate the Lord Jesus, and then there are those who love the Lord Jesus. Now, we already know what can happen to those who love the Lord Jesus. I will not say ought to happen, but it is a borderline ought here. Suffering for Jesus, borderline ought to happen. But look at what happens to those who hate the Lord Jesus. So first point, number A, those who hate the Lord Jesus are blind to their sin. Look at verse 22, he says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Pastor Kent Hughes recalls a story here, and actually he's quoting somebody else, not Robbie or Troy, or me for that matter, but Pastor Kent Hughes is, is recalling a story here that helps us really understand what Jesus is saying here in verse 22. He says, once an African chief, in this case a woman, happened to visit a mission station. Hanging outside of the missionary's cabin on a tree was a little mirror. The chief happened to look into the mirror and saw her reflection with its hideous paint and evil features. She gazed at her own terrifying countenance and jumped back into horror, in horror, exclaiming, who is that horrible-looking person inside that tree? Oh, the missionary said, it is not in the tree. The glass is reflecting your own face. The African would not believe it until she held the mirror in her hand. She said, I must have the glass. How much will you sell it for? Oh, the missionary said, I do not want to sell it, but she begged until he capitulated. She took the mirror, exclaiming, I will never have it making faces at me again. And she threw it down and broke it in pieces. This is what the haters of Jesus did. Jesus came and his words and his deeds exposed their sin. But instead of taking advantage of these wonderful opportunities they had to confess, to forsake their sin, to make things right. <clears throat> they were furious that their sin was being exposed. 
And so they attempted to break into pieces the one who was exposing them. And even today, if you firmly, excuse me, and even today, if you firmly but lovingly expose the sins of others or the sins of the culture, some might listen and be saved. Notice Jesus does say there that some will listen to you if they are able to listen to my words but others will hate you for it. And some, as we have seen kind of throughout the history of the church, will try to break you into pieces. Letter number B, those who hate the Lord Jesus hate God the Father as well. And this point really requires zero explanation. Look at verse 23. He says, whoever hates me hates my Father also. Shortest point in the sermon ever. Done. Letter number C. Some of you are like, finally. Letter number C. Those who hate the Lord Jesus have a convoluted sense of right and wrong. Those who hate the Lord Jesus have a convoluted sense of right and wrong. I was listening to a comedian years ago who was talking about people who hate and protest Christmas. And he kind of jokingly said, which part do you hate the most? Is it the peace on earth part or the goodwill toward men part? Which is true. Look at what Jesus said in verse 24. He said, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Can you imagine standing around with the crowd at the tomb? People are bawling their eyes out. This is a sad moment. And all of a sudden, you hear and see Jesus say, Lazarus, come out. And out comes Lazarus, and and now everyone's rejoicing. Everyone's astonished. Everyone's excited about the moment. And you say, boy, that makes me angry. I mean, this was a glorious miracle that brought great joy to everyone, and the only thing you can do is hate it. Maybe you're in a synagogue, and you hear Jesus say, stretch out your hand. And this man who hadn't been able to do anything for years with his shriveled up hand is walking around giving high fives to everyone now. And it makes you so angry that you have an immediate staff meeting with your associates and make plans to kill the man who just did such a wonderful miracle. In fact, Jesus says in chapter 16, verse 2, that those who hate him and the Father are by default, he says in verse 2, will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. The word for service here is the same word used for worship. Those who persecuted Jesus and his disciples, though they were giving, thought they were giving honor and obedience to God. In fact, before Paul became a Christian, this is what he thought he was doing. He's giving his religious credentials in Philippians chapter 3 when he says in verses 5 and 6, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. And then he goes, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. 
Paul saw his persecution of the church as being zealous for God. This was a convoluted sense of right and wrong. The word woe truly applies here. Not the horsey woe, like woe, big fella. But we're talking W-O-E. You're pronouncing a curse upon your head. You're wanting to die, and you ought to die. And look what it says in Isaiah 5, verse 20. He says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. If you are hated by the world because you love the world, then you are free from the sick and twisted morality that this world uses to persecute a people without cause. And that is a glorious thing to, be, to call it good. Letter number D. Those who hate the Lord Jesus have zero justification for doing so. just want to hit on a couple of things here. First of all, Jesus says in verse 22, but now they have no excuse for their sin. I love that word excuse. It means to shine forth. The idea is to put on a show up front to distract someone from what is really going on. It's like the Wizard of Oz. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. But the Lord knows the intentions of the heart, whether a curtain is covering them or not. And so here are these people, these religious zealots that are following God, and therefore I'm killing the Savior. Following God, and therefore I'm killing His followers, and those kinds of things. But really, it's just a, a show up front that are trying to hide their murderous intentions. The haters of the Lord and His disciples throughout history might have had the greatest show of justification ever happening in front of the public eye. But in reality, Jesus said of his persecutors, they are of their father, the devil. And the devil was a murderer from the very beginning. Second thing is, Jesus says in verse 25, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Now, this is a specific reference to Psalm 69, verse 4, where David says, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? Essentially what Jesus is saying here is the religious leaders who are justifying their wickedness with the Scripture, because they said that all the time, we follow Moses. Jesus is saying the Scriptures condemn you. You are on the wrong side of the fulfillment of those scriptures. You are without excuse. Finally, point number four. And this is the icing on the cake. How many of you all like cake? How many of you all think cake, the only purpose of cake is to hold up the icing? Because you love the icing. Cake's okay, but icing. Man, there you go. Well, this is the icing. Number four is this. Being hated by the world is a reminder of eternal victory. Being hated by the world is a reminder of eternal 
victory. I love what John says here. Letter number A is this. Your partner in endurance is the Holy Spirit. The idea that Jesus would be leaving soon was starting to develop in chapter 14. And there's no way that this did not disturb these people. That Jesus was saying, I'm about to leave. But not only did it disturb them because they loved him, but now all of a sudden he's saying, oh, and by the way, the people who are going to kill me, they're going to kill you too. Jesus says in verses 26 and 27, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. In other words, are we going to be alone in this task? Are we going to be bearing witness by ourselves? And he says, no, I'm sending the helper. I love that word, paraclete. To call alongside. That's what the Holy Spirit is. He has been called to come alongside of us and to help us. You know, it's almost like, you know, I kind of joked uh, several sermons back about speed bumps and how they're just little moments of, you know, discomfort or something like that. Well, Jesus leaves, speed bump, and the Holy Spirit arrives. Here we go. And that's what we're talking about here. God the Son was leaving, but God the Spirit was coming. They would not be left alone. Their their partner in bearing witness of Jesus. And folks, here's the good news. Your partner in bearing witness of Jesus is the third person in the Trinitarian God. Letter number B. These terrible things that happen to you do not surprise you because your Lord is sovereign. Verses 1 and 2, Jesus says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. And we don't understand that, folks, but that is literal. You got to move. Your life as you know it is over. If you get kicked out of the synagogue, you lose your job, you lose your social status, you lose all of your friends, you lose everything just about except your life. It's not like, oh, I can just go to another church. So they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. So how could these people not fall away after experiencing the pain of social rejection, job loss, loss of life, those kinds of things? The answer is by Jesus telling them these things would happen. And by doing so, he was showing them that he was sovereign over time. Let's just say in a situation, a Jewish official is interrogating a Christian prisoner who has been removed from the synagogue and is now facing death. And they ask, why are you not renouncing this Jesus of Nazareth? And the prisoner says, he told me this would happen. I'm not surprised. Letter number C. The condition of those who hate the Lord is terrifying. 
The condition of those who hate the Lord is terrifying. Look at verse 3, he says, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. And folks, this is the most terrifying place a person could be in. Not knowing the Father, not knowing the Son is to be the current and eternal loser. And folks, you don't pity the winners, do you? Let's say we had a race. We're going to race to uh, cross point. Go. We all, you know, jump up and start, you know, running as best we can or crawling or walking or we get in our car and cheat and drive or whatever, but, but we rush to cross point and the first person gets there and they're standing there, you know, like Rocky, just in the air, you know, just jumping and, and excited. Rocky's a movie, teenagers, that you probably have never watched. But anyway, he's rocking and jumping, you know, and he's doing that sort of thing and celebrating and nobody's going to walk up and say, oh, I'm so sorry. So sorry you won. That must, you must feel terrible. Nobody pities the winners. But folks, in the scenario where the haters of God are in, king's, in the king's palace and the lovers of God are rotting in the dungeon, the group that should receive the most pity are those that are in the palace. That's just the reality. They don't know God, which is an amazing thought. I'm reading about Nigeria, I'm chasing a rabbit for just a second, but in reading about Nigeria, you know, that read the story of this man who, uh, you know, he and his wife were having a conversation, and they were like, we, we just love each other so much, and who's going to go first kind of thing? And he was like, I, he, the, the, the husband was like, I want to go first because I want my daughters, my two daughters, to have a loving mother for their life. And he goes to donate blood in the, the village. And he's kind of communicating back and forth over the phone with his wife. And his wife calls and says, don't come back. We hear gunshots in the, in the next village nearby. Won't be safe. And he says, okay. And then the next call he receives is a terrified voice of his wife saying, they're in our village now. She's killed. Now, in that conversation about who goes first, she said, I have a strange feeling that I'm going to be going before you. And that's what happened. But how can you look in the face of the person who shot your wife in the stomach and bled out while your two their two daughters are sitting right next to her for the most part of the day before they finally find her and bury her in a mass grave? How can you look on the people with the guns or the evil language or the fists, or the power, and pity them. But that's what we're talking about here. But you can look at these people, and you pity them, because they don't know God. They don't know God. Letter number D. Your darkest day was way worse for those who hate the Lord. In fact, I would say your darkest day was infinitely worth, worse excuse me, for those who hate the Lord. Verse 4, Jesus says, But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. 
I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Some of you may have a version that says, but I have said when the time comes. And I will land the plane with a quote from D.A. Carson. That's amazing. D.A. Carson says, instead of when the time comes, the best reading of this passage is when their hour comes. In this context, their hour refers not only to the death of Jesus, but to the outbreak of persecution against his followers that will ensue. It is their hour because it will appear that the oppressors have the upper hand. From the perspective of faith, it is their hour only in the most ephemeral way. And ultimately, the oppressors are working their own defeat. Indeed, because hour is so regularly tied up with Jesus' appointment with his death or exaltation, remember Jesus said several times, my hour has not yet come. It is hard not to see that John has introduced another irony. What appears to be their last hour has been introduced by Jesus' hour. But in this case, he seems to be suffering defeat in the very moment when he is winning the greatest of all victories. And while at their hour, they seem to be winning when they are suffering the greatest of all defeats. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be challenged by your word this morning. God, I pray, Lord, if there is anyone here who is currently facing hatred from this world, Lord, perhaps they are on the socials, as we talked about earlier, defending the faith and receiving much ridicule. Perhaps they have a family member who is hostile to the gospel. Lord, whatever the situation, if there's someone here that is facing, facing hatred from the world, I pray, O oh God, that they were encouraged by you this morning. What a loving Savior who warns us of the inevitability of suffering for his namesake. But what a loving Savior who gives us such precious promises to show to us that that is a moment to flip the script and to see that it is a great blessing to suffer for your namesake, Lord. I pray, O oh God, that if those who are suffering right now have heard this message, I pray that they would worship you. And Lord, for those of us who currently aren't in that season of life, Lord, may we shore up, may we put on our armor, and may we put you on display in such a way that somebody is so aggravated that they seek to destroy the source that is reflecting their own personal sin. And Lord, as we face that, Lord, stinging as it is, heartbreaking as it is, painful as it is, may the helper come alongside of us and sustain us and grant us faithful proclamation that Jesus saves from sin. Grant us encouragement in our heart of hearts over our brokenness of the situation. And Lord, may we just delight in the fact that in that moment that nobody, we would wish on nobody, 
Lord, we are reminded of an eternal victory through you. We praise you for that, and we thank you for all that you do for us, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.